Well, it was so good hearing from Pastor Peter. Almost wanted Bob to pass the phone to all of us and each of us take a minute or two to say hi to him personally. We thank the uh, the tech team, I guess, of our church who made that happen. The technology is indeed um, has given us a lot of opportunities and a lot of freedoms to uh, freedom to uh, communicate now. I'm hoping for maybe in a few years we'll have video conferencing. We could actually see him and see him um, projected up there and talking to us. Maybe a few years after that, we could have maybe a holographic image, you know, like, like Star Wars or something, and he could actually, maybe who knows, you know. But so good to uh, hear just uh, encouraging reports, just to hear his heart, uh, being faithful in the field. Um, what an awesome and mighty God we serve that raises up men like Peter Smith. Uh, to faithfully proclaim the gospel on the four corners of this world. It really is um, a joy to be a partner with him. It was a little like, I'm reading a, bio, I'm reading a historical book on uh, Churchill and Roosevelt's friendship during 39 through 45, and Roosevelt would uh, wait for the news from the front lines to see how each battle went, and because of the time difference, he would wake up three in the morning, four in the morning, just to hear from the commanders on the field on how the battle was turning. It was a little like that. You know, I liked the little static even on the uh, phone connection. It was kind of the sense where he was out there in a real foreign front line and we were at home base just um, hearing the report. Well, praise God for what God is doing. And um, just, uh, you know, I agree with Elder Bob that yeah, that's good insight. That's all right. Probably the most important team this year is the Orange County team. Um, we want to be found faithful in our lives, in our, in our home, in our communities first, and then abroad. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then this earth. And so first Jerusalem. So we're going to be found faithful here. So let's not forget the Orange County team and continue to pray for them. Well, before we start in our study, I want to mention the two books that have assisted me greatly in our study this morning. Uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, was of immense help. Uh, Randy Alcorn. And Ronald Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, was also helpful. A few weeks ago, we looked at John 15, verse 12, uh, Christ's command to love one another. And um, I relate to you that... Um, you know, I think most believers know that we are to love one another. It is not a new idea, a new concept, a new command. And I think Cornerstone is somewhat of a maturing church, a well-taught church, I believe, and a church largely with members who are endeavoring to love one another. And I, I concluded that what I need to focus on is not the command to love one another. Everyone is trying to do that. What I need to focus on is what hinders us, what prevents us from loving one another. And if you remember, we looked at selfishness. That is our enemy. That is what wars against our hearts in, in terms of our following through on loving one another. Well, likewise, we have planned months ago for, for me to give a mission sermon on this day, Communion Sunday of April. And I thought, you know, Cornerstone is a maturing church and a church that is leaning forward in terms of prayer, evangelism, ministry, and missions. Um, you know, we are a church that's deeply committed to the gospel and the propagation of the gospel to, to uh, all the people. And if you know the people at Cornerstone, you would know that people are relatively fairly committed to evangelism, ministry, and missions. I was... I heard a family was out there last week at CCF Barbecue, passing out flyers and sharing the gospel. A husband and wife and three young children out there sharing the gospel. I was talking to a couple this week, and they were saying each week, the first few days is the blur, because Sunday they have church all day, and then Monday they have work, and Monday night they have a ministry meeting. Tuesday they go to work, Tuesday night they have uh, ET, they're going out evangelizing, they're going to Cerritos College in the malls, 
uh, doing 120 evangelism. And then on Wednesday night, they have flock. I'm like, wow, that's intense. Three nights a week for ministry and mission uh, evangelism. My wife was talking to a collegian and she was saying, yeah, Sunday all day and then Wednesday she has CCF. And they have small group time at CCF, but the girls are so hungry that they meet on, on Thursday again for small group Bible study. And then on Sunday night they have CCF staff meeting. So I concluded that for, for me to come up here and to exhort and encourage all of you for ministry and missions, it's somewhat redundant. It's somewhat preaching to the choir. I need to do something similar to our study on love one another. What is our single greatest threat, single greatest enemy that hinders us, and that might, that is and will, that future potentially might prevent us from being effective in these areas? And I concluded that the greatest enemy of Cornerstone uh, in terms of ministry, evangelism, and missions, is simply this. It's simply materialism. Materialism. There are many names for our enemy. Materialism is but just one label that is used to describe this enemy. Other, other terms are greed, um, covetousness, gluttony, uh, self-indulgence, and in a way, selfishness. It is known by different names. It manifests itself in various ways. But the singular reality is this, that the number one threat to our Christian faith, to our testimony, to our ministry, to our commitment to evangelism and missions, is nothing else. It's simply materialism. This wicked and evil philosophy of life has existed from the beginning of time And wherever it is present, it has wreaked havoc on lives of faithful Christians. And to us here, living in um, the most prosperous country in the world, one of the most prosperous states, one of the most prosperous areas of that state, and among our uh, people, probably the the prosperous category, it is uh, a unique threat, a distinctive threat for us. Let me just highlight to you um, a few reasons why it is a unique threat, um, an, uh, you know, a, a powerful threat for Christians at Cornerstone. First of all, it is proven, I mean, it's taught through Scripture, and it's proven through church history, that prosperity is often the result of faithful Christian living. Prosperity is often the result, almost always the result of faithful uh, Christian living. Genuine faith results in prosperity and not in, you know, a TBN kind of way, not in kind of faith, health, wealth, and prosperity kind of way, but just by, if you're a faithful Christian, you're avoiding sin, and sin costs a lot of money. So if you've lived any time in the world, you realize, man, being a sinner costs a lot, right? You know, a pack a day, two packs a day. Okay, I, I know how much it costs, right? Um, alcohol itself, right? It's a lot of money. Um, going to those places costs money. You know, gambling, right? I mean, the, the reason, you know, hotels have casinos is because they make money, not people who go and gamble. Um, the extravagant lifestyle, and not to mention the legal costs, of a sinful lifestyle. This is a, these, these things cost a lot of money, maybe 10, 20, 30, 50% of your income. Christians, we don't sin in that way. So we save so much money simply by just not sinning. Now you add to that, true Christians are hard workers because we understand that God gave us the command to work before the fall. Like work is not a curse for us. Right? Work is joy. Whether as a housewife or as an accountant or a teacher, God called us to work and to produce with our hands before the fall. So it is a joy. So we work hard. Most people in the world, they don't work hard. Right? They're mailing it in. But Christians, we have, we're conscientious. 
We, we give in our due diligence at work. We're men and women of integrity. We're men and women of, of, of diligence. So we are often hired. We are promoted. We receive bonuses or we're entrepreneurial. We start our own businesses. So believers make a lot of money. And that is proven by church history and that is shown at Cornerstone as well. John Wesley said this, Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive to Christianity. Wherever Christianity prevails, so does materialism, and thus it saps its own foundation." Listen to what Puritan pastor Cotton Mather said. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured its mother. Very insightful. Religion produces prosperity, but the daughter devoured the, the mom. And so it is a doubly threat for us because um, most of us are rich because we work Hard. We studied hard, we worked hard, we are working hard, and we are, really in the grand scheme of things, all of us are rich. Second reason this is a, a unique threat to our church is that we live in a materialistic culture. Our culture is like it's on steroids <laughs> with materialism. And therefore, our lives are filled to overflowing with material things. Our society is filled with consumers being consumed by consumption. The world in which we live in is so affluent, has such an abundance of material things that we are bombarded and filled with temptations. Um, Richard Foster said, The lust for affluence in our society has become psychotic has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. You know, I told you guys about the parking problem at our home. Well, you know, how our neighbor, family of three, they have four cars, and they parked their car, you know, right in front of our home, and like, Dave West came by, and he's like, hey, there it is, serving your game. And he's like, it's not against the law. I'm like, it's not against the law, man. Well, like... <laughs> Family of three, they have four cars. You know what that happened? You know what happened? They bought another car. <laughs> like, oh man, right? So family of three, now they have five cars. I'm thinking, are they gonna sell one, two? No, they're keeping five cars for a family of three. But that's kind of consistent, I guess, with the world we live in. Uh, one of the most popular um, weekday out of the home entertainment activities is shopping. Shopping is a, a, a main, a major hobby for many, many today. PBS, they had a PBS special years ago called Affluenza, right? not influenza, but Affluenza. Called it the modern day plague of materialism. And uh, some symptoms of this new plague in our society is that the average American shops six hours a week, but spends 40 minutes playing with his or her children. Six hours shopping, 40 minutes with the kids. By the age of 20, the average television viewer has seen one million commercials. Recently, more Americans have declared bankruptcy than have graduated from college. 90% of divorces, arguments about money has played a prominent role. These are this is the world we live in, and it's doubly a danger for us. And third reason is because we have been influenced by our age. Instead of being transformed by the renewal of God's Word in this area, well-meaning, maturing Christians have conformed to this world. Um, during the days of the Iron Curtain, a persecuted Roman pastor, Romanian pastor, said, In my experience, 95% of believers who face the test of persecution pass it. So 95% of those who are persecuted pass the test. 
But 95% of those who face the test of prosperity, they fail. 95%. It is easy to handle a test. It's hard to handle a privilege. Solomon prayed in Proverbs 38 9, God, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. You understood they're both temptations. If I'm poor, I'll be tempted to steal and rob. But if I'm rich, I'll be tempted to say, who is the Lord? And I'll forget you. Well, in God's perfect sovereignty, He has saw fit that we will be tempted with the first test of prosperity. And so, so many of us, it's a significant temptation to forget God. And even ask, who is the Lord? Because we are, we are wealthy, we are prosperous. This is what Wesley said again. Um, In the old days of Methodism, the people were poor. But many Methodists had become 20, 30, or even 100 times richer than they were at first. With this increase in wealth had come a decrease in godliness. It seemed to me, the more money the Methodists had, the less they loved God. We saw that video a few weeks ago, the Taliyabo story. I mean, we're so encouraged. If you haven't seen that, it's a must-see. I was talking to a brother and he said, like, he almost just lost it. He almost, like, got on his knees and started pounding the floor because he was just so moved and encouraged by the believers. Now, what if there was a sequel, right? Taliyabo Part 2. And these documentarians went back and they found these Taliyabo Christians because they became saved, they were diligent. They started being thrift and frugal and working hard and started being entrepreneurial and they started making money. They started shopping for good clothes, getting their hair done, spa treatments, manicures and pedicures, right? They were getting like DSL lines, right? And shopping on Amazon.com and, you know, buying uh, Hummers and so forth. And they're living like this extravagant lifestyle and they forgot the Lord. That would be, as encouraged we were by their faith, the response to the gospel, we would be equally discouraged to see what their faith uh, produced. Diligence, riches, and then they forgot God. They forgot the Lord. Well, sad to say, we have conformed to the world. Every Christian here to a different degree, but no one is immune from affluenza. No one. Right. So one of the saddest observations is that the spending habits of people in the church differ little than those of the world. Spending habits differ, differ little. The lifestyle of most professing Christians are not substantially different than anyone else's. Too many in the church have adopted the world's indulgent attitude toward money. Almost every form of materialistic extravagance and excess has found its way into the fellowship of believers. And so... You know, we've seen this. We experience this. We live this out. I know a couple. I can't use our illustration because I don't want to, you know, hurt anyone, offend anyone. But someone outside of our church, you go to their house and it's like Disneyland. It's like Dave and Buster's. It's entertainment center. It's incredible. They have like I mean, all these gadgets and toys and just... You know, just entertainment in every room. And you go to their main room and they have like a, a TV the size of a garage door I hear. It's recently purchased. I mean, are your eyesight that poor that, you know, like, you want to like experience, like, you know, the infomercial is that personally that you have to have such a large screen? G. Campbell Morgan, the famous preacher, said this, the measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age because she has been untrue of the facts of her own life. We are sometimes told today that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of this age. No, a thousand times no. 
what the church supremely needs is to correct and confront the spirit of the age. The church in Corinth, catching the spirit of Corinth, became anemic, weak, and failed to deliver the message of God to Corinth. The church of God in London, invaded by the spirit of London, the materialism, sordidness, and selfishness of London is too weak to save London. If the church's failure is due to the fact that the spirit of the city has invaded the church, the church's success will be due to the fact that the spirit of the church has invaded the city. The church of God always fails when she becomes conformed to the methods, maxims, and manners of the city. The church of God always succeeds only when they are true to the supernatural nature of our life. She stands in perfect separation from the city. Only thus is she able to touch and help the city. What makes us effective, what makes us powerful, salt and light in our world is not by becoming rich or richer than this world. Not by outdoing in the area of materialism. We stand out by, by living out the truth that we are pilgrims living for eternity. And by being different, by being separate, by being distinct. To the degree we conform to this world, to that degree our evangelistic light dims. And fourth reason why this issue is so important to us is because money and our Christian faith, our maturity, are directly tied. There is an inextricable correlation, a direct correlation between money and our maturity. Some believers wrongly think they dichotomize their checkbook with the Bible and saying how I spend money, invest money, save money, relate to money has nothing to do with my Christian faith because the Christian faith is about the heart. It's a spiritual issue. This is a physical issue. That is wrong. The Bible tells us the opposite. Scripture tells us there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and faith and how he handles money. We know this to be true simply by the amount of instructions that our Lord gave to us concerning money. Our Lord said more about money than about any other single topic. Despite that alone, Christ tells us that this is important, that this is a biblical and timeless principle. There is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our possessions. We know, I hope, through Scripture and through our experience that wealth presents a barrier to genuine spiritual birth and growth. It's a barrier. So in a sense, like if we get a raise, we should be happy, but also... Not sad, but kind of take a step back. If we make money, we should understand the threat that it presents, the obstacle, the barrier, the hindrance that comes with money. John Calvin said, If Christ is not Lord over our money and possessions, then He is not our Lord. That's a radical statement, but a true one. If we say Christ is our Lord, except for our our possessions, except for our checkbook, then He is not our Lord at all. It is so important for believers to have a right understanding and a right response to materialism, and it's doubly for us for these four reasons, for Christians in our church. And I'll tell you today that it is a difficult issue. I don't want to trivialize it and overly simplify it. I can't give you, in one sermon, how to have a biblical mindset with finances. It is so complex. I almost, I had to hold myself back, I almost went on a five-part study on finances. I'm like, no, don't do that, James, because we've got to finish John, right? There'll be other opportunities. But it is such a multifaceted, complex issue. And I am still figuring it out. Figuring it out. 
I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm still growing in this area of, of growing in wisdom in the area of money. I mean, you know, life used to be simpler. When I was a collegian, when I was in seminary, a poor seminarian, you know, I used to be very frugal. Um, you know, I, I always wrestle whether to use personal illustrations or not. I don't want to embarrass myself, but I don't want to, like, you know, promote myself either. So, you guys, I don't know if I'm embarrassing myself or promoting myself. You, you, guys, you guys can interpret that. You know, I remember going shopping one time, our first year of marriage, and, you know, we're buying sandals. And I found a pair that were the wrong size. One size was size 9, one size was size 10. So evidently, somebody before took two wrong pairs. And so there's, there's this store, and that, uh, you know, they're wrong sizes. And I went to the store manager and says, look, you know, somebody, t- you guys sold it the wrong way, and it's size 9, size 10. And I'm, he's like, okay, I'll give it to you for $10. I'm like, no, it's wrong size. <laughs> Who's going to want this? $3, right? And he's like, all right, take it, you know, get, get out of our store, three bucks, give him cash. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Don't buy this. It's the wrong size. I'm like, seriously, you can't tell. You put it on. Who's going to notice except for me, maybe you? Nobody will. I wore those sandals for like three to four years. And everywhere I went, my wife was like embarrassed. But I was so proud because look, I know I'm being frugal. So that was my lifestyle, my mindset. And, you know, we're a young church, we're a young church plant, and we're living, in, living out and growing. And before I know it, I'm a pastor of a growing congregation, growing church. And, you know, my salary goes up. You know, I receive gifts from people in the church. Like the suit that I'm wearing is a gift. It was like a, for one of the weddings, a tailor, I've tailor-made suit. So I had to go to this place in, De- in L.A. four or five times. Man, I'd rather like, man, I think it would have been simpler to go to JCPenney and pick out a pair, pick out a suit, because I have to get every little, it's okay, I used to buy wrong pairs, you know, sometimes <laughs> I don't really care about size. My size is changing anyways. I mean, but my lifestyle is changing, so I'm still trying to figure out what, it, how to handle money. A few years ago, um, we bought our, my wife and I, we bought our first car together. I've never bought a new car. I bought a used three-year-old Nissan Maxima with like 30,000 miles on it. I've never owned a car with six cylinders. I remember talking to Bob. Man, Bob, is, you know, be honest. Is that too extravagant? Is that too much for me to buy uh, this Maxima? Bob's like, what are you talking about? It's okay. But really, with my conscience, I wasn't sure. But isn't that what you all, I mean, if you're a Christian, you're struggling with this, Right? I, should I buy a house? If I do, what kind of house? If I buy a car, what kind of car can I buy? You know, right now, you can lease a Mercedes for around 350 right? I mean, I, I, you know, I read the newspaper. I mean, before, Mercedes was like just, you know, wealthy, multimillionaires, but they've crunched the numbers where you, everyone here could pretty much afford a Mercedes, 350 lease a month, Right? Or if I buy a suit, right, there's a limit, there's no limit on how expensive a suit that's provided for us. Buying a watch, you know, buying shoes. And I struggle with this. Like, I have regular shoes, I have dress shoes, I have basketball shoes, I have sandals, you know, and then I have like, I don't know, what other shoes do I have? But it's like, do I need, how many pairs of shoes do I need? Um, is it right to golf once in a while? Is it wrong to golf, you know, twice a week? Is it wrong to belong to a country club where you spend, where you have to pay like thousands of dollars just for membership? Is it okay to eat out? But if I eat out, is it okay to spend five, ten dollars on a meal or go to Ruth Chris and spend a hundred dollars, right, on a single steak? I mean, is that is that okay or is that am I being like, you know, Ananias, or am I being just, you know, an unbeliever there? Uh, how can I be sure I'm pleasing God in my financial decision? Philip Yancey was very honest in his uh, foreword to his book, Money. He said, many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. 
For others, a permanent battle against doubt. For me, the one issue that haunts me forever is money. It hangs over me. It keeps me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes, I want to sell everything I own and join a Christian commune and live out my days in intentional poverty. On other days, I want to rid myself of this guilt and enjoy the fruits of our nation's prosperity. That's how we glorify God. Whatever you do, whether you eat and drink, Glorify God. We shouldn't feel guilty when we work hard and we provide food and we shouldn't feel guilty over the fruits of our labor as God provided us. We should enjoy it for the glory of God and He wants to do that at other times. Mostly, I wish I did not have to think about money at all, but I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. Can you identify with that? Do you have that tension? Some days you want to give it all away. Right? And live, live in poverty. Other days, you want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Where do we stand? How are we to respond to this? There have been two common responses, attitudes towards money. The first is asceticism. Asceticism is about poverty. Ascetics practice strict self-denial, depriving themselves of all but the essential basics of the material world. It comes from a dualistic idea, dualistic philosophy where they see all things that pertain to the spirit is moral and good. All things in the physical realm, by nature, it's evil. So they live to avoid the physical world, right? And they have committed to an ascetic lifestyle. Church history is filled with such uh, ascetics, St. Francis of Assisi, objected to his followers of having any book other than the Bible because he said they are not necessary. He taught that money should be shunned as the devil himself so he and his disciples never touched money. Right? They, they considered it corrupt, a corrupting influence to touch money. They never touched money. They glorified poverty and they saw someone begging for food as a virtue as a way of earning merit with God. Um, other ascetics refrained from marriage, denied themselves certain foods. Others literally beat their own bodies. Some lived in caves or towers for years. Some, like, they never bathed. They never cut their hair, right? They never changed their clothes. All in the name of being separate from this world. Uh, a man named Tim, Tim Hensel addresses the aesthetic Christian's misreading of uh, Scripture. He wrote, Irony of ironies, his commitment to Jesus Christ has become a prison rather than a blessing. So blinded by religious observations and reservations, he fails to see the festivity that was so central to the life of Jesus. He forgets that Jesus, despite the sad world he inhabited, was the prime host and the prime guest of many parties. Jesus himself let, he, Jesus let himself be doused with perfume. He un, attended weddings and wore a wedding garments. The Bible is full of merriment. The feast outruns the fast. Uh, Puritan William Ames rejected the monk's vow of poverty as madness superstitious and wicked presumption, being that they sell this poverty for a superstitious and presumptuous end. Um, They think that through this way they will gain satisfaction and merit before man and before God. It is absurd. It is not biblical. It is not, you know, Paul considers such men, 1 Timothy 4, 3-5, false teachers who respond to the world in this way. And I thought about spending... You know, a good amount of time uh, talking about the dangers and the fruitlessness of asceticism. But then I thought to myself, this is not even an issue, close to being an issue with us. I I don't think anyone really in Cornerstone is in danger of being an ascetic. So I said, why bother? I'm 
I mean, I'm preaching to the wrong, wrong choir. If I'm, so the other attitude that is a danger to us, a threat to us, is materialism. Again, materialism. Um, New College Dictionary defines it as a theory that physical matter is the only fundamental reality that matters. Two, uh, two other doc- definitions flow from this. It's a doctrine that the only or the highest value or objective in life is material well-being and the furtherance of material progress. Or a preoccupation with or stress upon material things rather than spiritual things. Many examples of um, materialists in the Bible Going back to Joshua 7, Achan's lust for money and possessions. He stole money, went against God's command and brought death to himself, his families, and dozens of men in battle. Numbers 22, the prophet Balaam cursed God because of Balak's money payment. Solomon's lust for more wealth caused him to uh, flagrantly disobey God's command. Deuteronomy 17. To gain wealth, Gehazi lied to Naaman and then to Elijah, 2 Kings 5. In the ultimate act of materialism, of treachery, Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Matthew 26. In Acts chapter 4, Barnabas sells his land and gives to the church. And the first fruit of that is for Ananias and Sapphira. Do the same, but to lie about it, and lie to the church, withholding the full amount. It was okay for them; it was their money. They could have kept it. They lied. They say oh, this is the full amount when it wasn't, and so God strike, struck them dead. It is no accident that this happened so early in the church history, and that God acted in such a powerful and memorable way. It was God's way of saying in the church, "This will always be a problem." Materialism. Money, finances, deceit concerning this. So he wants to give a clear demonstration of his utter hatred of of these things. What are the dangers of materialism? There are so many dangers. Just highlight to you seven briefly. First of all, materialism prevents or even destroys our spiritual life. Prevents or Destroys our spiritual life. You know, people in the world want to win the lottery for Christians. It's a scary thing, right? If you were to win, let's say tomorrow, ten million dollars, would you want that? Knowing that not only would it prevent you from spiritual growth, it could, but it could destroy your faith. It really can. Matthew thirteen twenty two, the seed was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word. And the word is choked out. The word of God is prevented, hindered from growing. Why? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Did you you hear that? Those who desire riches, they fall into temptation. You know, there is a perfect temptation out there for, for me. Or if it was given to me, I would fall. Really, right? There is a perfect temptation, because I'm a sinner, that if God were not to lead me from... That's our prayer. Lead me from temptation, Lord. Because if I fall into that temptation, and it's perfect for my weaknesses, my sinfulness, my pride, all my, my, my uh, infirmities, I would fall every time. So God, you need to give me grace and keep me from that temptation. Paul says, if you want to be rich... You're, you're, you're falling into, you're running to temptation instead of running away from it. For, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many 
pangs, materialism, not only prevents, can prevent, but it can destroy our spiritual life. Secondly, materialism blinds us to the curses of wealth. Blinds us to the curses of wealth. Wealth brings with it unhappiness and anxiety. And because we're young, we only see money on this side of the, uh, of the door. We see only the positive sides of money. But because, of, and maybe to some of you, we've experienced it, we experience the other side of having money. That it does not bring happiness, does not bring satisfaction. That it produces unhappiness and anxiety. John D. Rockefeller, I have made many millions, but they brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Jay Gould, 19th century American banker who was worth some $100 million on his deathbed, he said, I am the most miserable man on the earth. Henry Ford said, I was more happy when I was a mechanic, doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Third danger, materialism ends in ultimate futility. If you can, turn with me to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament chapter 5, right after Proverbs, uh, uh, or Song of Solomon, excuse me. Uh, materialism uh, ends in ultimate futility. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15. Let's kind of briefly go through this. Verse 10, Solomon says, and he is an authority because he has a lot of money, or he had a lot of money, said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Never has money enough. That's an incredible statement. The word never in the Hebrew is emphatic. There are no exceptions. Whoever loves money never has enough. It means the more you have, the more you want. It's like drinking salt water, like ocean water. The more you drink, more thirsty you are. The more thirsty you'll become. Same thing with money. The more you have, you just want more. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. So the more you have, less satisfied you are. Inverse relationship. Verse 11. As goods increase, as goods increase so do those who consume it. The richer you become, people start wanting your money, right? The government will want more of it, right? Your f- relatives that you never knew you had will come and call you up. Your friends will come and just people, right? Insurance salesmen, just salesmen will come. Why? They want what you have, right? What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The more you have, the more you realize money's no good. doesn't meet my real need. All it's good for is for me to look at it. Verse 12, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have to worry about. When I had that 10-year-old Altima, Nissan Altima, that's been in three car accidents, parking in downtown LA, no worries, right? It's safe. Do you have a large system? Why do I need an alarm system? Come on, right? If they want this, they're more desperate than me. They can have it. But you buy a new car, right? Buy more insurance, and anxiety level goes up, and you lose sleep. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Verse 15, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and he... And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. When John Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked, how much did he leave? The accountant responded perfectly, all of it. How much did he leave? Everything. He can't take a penny. He has to leave it all more we have, more we leave behind. All right. Ends in ultimate futility. Fourth danger, materialism obscures 
the best things in life which are free, like salvation, obscures our sight of salvation, of our family, friendships, relationships. Number five, materialism leads to pride and elitism. Riches and pride go hand in hand. That's why 1 Timothy 6.19, Paul's first command to the rich, and therefore to all of us, is to not be conceited. Right, do not be conceited. Number six, materialism fosters immorality and the deterioration of the family. How many families, relationships have been destroyed because of money? How many relatives don't get together anymore? Right On Christmas, Thanksgiving, some uncle doesn't come, some aunt's family don't, they don't attend, or even within our family, siblings, they don't talk to each other. Why? Because years ago, there was a arguing about money over inheritance. And number seven, materialism distracts us from our central purpose. Distracts us from our central purpose. Piper rightly calls this a wasted life. A wasted life. Someone who lives his or her life for money, for things that money can buy, and they have a lot of things in storage but it's been all a waste. Oh, let's go to the application part. Two antidotes to materialism. Two antidotes. First antidote to this plague is adopting a simple lifestyle. Simple lifestyle. Really, in essence, is adopting a humble lifestyle. Humble lifestyle. What is humility? Brothers and sisters, humility is not our personality. Like, you know, people wrongly think maybe that I'm humble because of my personality, but they don't understand. That's not humility, right? Uh, humility is one's conduct, one's lifestyle, one's decisions. So a humble person, humble man, humble woman, is how he or she spends money. Right? A prideful man will spend money in a prideful way and live a lavish lifestyle, extravagant lifestyle, a self-indulgent lifestyle. A humble Christian will live humbly. They'll purchase things humbly. They'll live a simpler lifestyle. Right? The lifestyle of the cross. They're, they understand they're following the Lord who went to the cross, who became poor so that we might be rich. Therefore, because Christ said, follow me, take up your cross, they're following Christ in this area as well. Thousands of ways to simplify our lives. Like buying used cars rather than new cars. Like modest homes rather than expensive ones. Not replacing old furniture just because of appearances. Be more functional, Right? mending and wearing old clothes, like giving up recreational shopping, cutting down on eating out, just having a pilgrim mindset, not investing in this world, but investing in the next. Uh, you know, it's the old uh, hotel illustration. We were at our retreat. We're at, you know, Oxnard uh, as a Radisson, and we're there, and you guys start rearranging furniture, and taking out the carpet and putting in new carpet and putting in new curtains and you're buying a new TV and we're like, what are you doing? We're only here for four days. Right? Don't spend money to put new carpeting in this hotel room because it's temporary. Or extrapolate that to our lives. This is not our home. We're pilgrims to the kingdom of God. For us to invest such you know, amount and, and and effort and energy for something that's temporary uh, is not wise, not humble. This was John Wesley's perspective. Let me tell you this story. Um, You know, we need to be careful when we take uh, human examples and principalize it. We need to understand that God gives grace, different grace to different men. And like, you know, I understand I'm not... John Wesley, I'm not John MacArthur, I'm not Peter Smith. So if I try to impersonate John MacArthur, right, by uh, just following his, his lifestyle, uh, it's not wise, not biblical, because we're all different. Like, you guys shouldn't try to 
impersonate me, right? Because I'm different, we're all different. So we need to understand, we have examples, and we need to take the biblical principle behind that example and appropriate it. Um, so with that kind of discernment, listen to Wesley's example. Uh, Wesley had just finished, while I was a student at Oxford, buying some pictures for his room, when one of the maids came to his door. It was a winter day, and he noticed she had only a thin linen gown to wear for protection against the cold. He reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat, and he found he had little left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. He spent his money decorating his room rather than caring for this poor maid who was cold. As a result of this incident in 1731, Wesley began to limit his expense, expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. So he found out that he could live on 28 pounds a year. That was more than sufficient for his life, for all of his needs. So one year he made 30 pounds, so he gave 2 pounds away. The next year he made 32 pounds. He still lived on 28, he gave 4 away. Following year he made 90 pounds because of his ministry. He still lived on 28, gave away 62. Fourth year he made 120, do the math, gave away 92. One year he made 1,400 pounds because of his ministry and his books. He gave away all but 28 pounds. Right, that's a humble lifestyle. Right? We have an income and we know with this amount of money, I can live well, provide for all of my needs, my wife, our children, our, our relatives as well. And so we'll live below that. We'll live below that amount. And if I make more, it's not to increase my standard of living. If I make more, it's to increase the, my standard of giving. Right? That's a simple humble lifestyle. The first antidote to materialism is to adopt the humble lifestyle. Second is to give. Second is to give. It is an effective way of battling materialism. It is a means to Christ-likeness. It is a means to maturity, a way to live out the Christian faith. Um, if you grow in every area but in the area of giving then your maturity is incomplete. First of all, we must give to the church. Before we give to uh, other ministries, parachurches, before we give to any other uh, social cause, our priority is to the church. John Chrysostom said this in AD 390 about the early church's giving. They did not dare to put their offering into the hands of the needy nor give it with lofty condescension, but they laid it at the feet of the apostles and made them masters and distributors of the gift. When a man was in need, he did not give directly. No, the leaders of the church gave to these individuals. So the priority of giving to the church and entrusting the leaders of the church to appropriate it wisely. So you might ask, Pastor James, where does our money go? Right. We've been giving for the past few years. How is our, our finances allotted? It's open book policy, open heart policy. I mean, we have nothing to hide. If you have any questions, you get any of our numbers, we will tell you. Right. Just briefly, um, 33% in 2003 went to payroll. Last year, 30% of our giving went to payroll. Who is payroll? Well, it's me, right? It's me, uh, Marcus, J Jason, and Joe Jung. Right? 30% of what you give goes towards supporting pastors. No soldier serves at his own expense. So, no, you know, you don't go to join the Marines and buy your own gun and buy your own helmet and buy your own pants and, you know, feed yourself, go to McDonald's, you know, in between war and feed yourself with change. You don't do that. The government provides everything, so you just fight. So, the church provides for our, our needs their tuition, the family, my family, so that we can just serve the church, serve Christ. In 2003, 23% went to missions. This past year, 2004, 26% went to missions. We hope to be a giving church. One day, be a 51% giving to missions. Who are missionaries that, that are supported by our church? Peter Smith, Tim Coyle, 
Bakajan Mukashev and Yarda Kernel. These are the men that we support for missions and our summer missions teams as well. Um, 2003, uh, 23% went to rent. And this past year, just 12% went, went to rent. Um, that's, you know, this building and all the classrooms. Um, 2003, 21% went to ministry. This past year, 22% went to ministry. Ministry means uh, retreats or various activities or high premium. There's a member in need we freely give. Right? We're a safety net. Members in need financially, we want to be there. Right? Um, and we will commit to that ministry. 2003, we saved 1%. Last year, we saved 10%. Right? So, give to the church, and this is how our, our finances are allocated. Secondly, in giving, excel in giving. Excel in giving. Strive to do well in this area. Second Corinthians 8.7 Paul to the Corinthians, As you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in earnestness, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. I think this verse can be rightly applied to all of you, that you excel in grace of love and ministry and service, also in this area of giving. Excel, do well in this area. Thirdly, have a mindset of giving... Discipline giving. I don't know how to articulate this. You know, give um, uh, with an understanding of just being disciplined, of being organized, being, being uh, set previously. So to do this, you must budget. As a single man or woman, or as a husband and wife, as a family, if you're not budgeting, if you don't have a, a monthly budget, and a year end, a financial statement of your, of your life or of your family, then you are a poor manager, poor steward. Oh, we had some guys at our church start a business yesterday. And if you went and talked to them, so how's your budget? And they said, oh, we don't have a budget. We just, you know, go, we just wing it. We just go with the flow, right? Or you want to invest in some com- company and look at their numbers. They have no numbers. There's no income, you know, expenses, asset statement. And they're saying, oh, no, we're just like walking by faith. You wouldn't, that's a mismanaged company. Likewise, if you're not budgeting, you're not giving wisely, you're giving irresponsibly, you are a poor steward. Um, you need to budget out. What is your rent? What is your mortgage? How much do you spend on food, on taxes, on medical insurance, car insurance, all the other expenses? And then you're giving to the church and you set a month for one year out or a month to month out in a disciplined way you give, then you know you're giving by faith. And you're, give, you're living below your income. If you're not budgeting, you have no idea what you're spending. And you're just you're flying blind. Fourthly, put giving to the Lord as a priority. Priority of giving to the Lord. Um, you know, it was tax day this past Friday, and many people in the world was, were looking for loopholes so they can pay uh, less taxes. Well, some Christians have a popular loophole they use in terms of giving. Many Christians use this loophole. I don't have any money left at the end of the month to give, therefore I, I can't give. Or I, I give less because I don't have the money at the end of the month. Right. Well, it's a loophole, right? Because their propensity is to spend generously and extravagantly on themselves so that at the end there's nothing left. Mindset is, bought an expensive house, car, vacation, new laptop, jewelry, shoes, spa treatment, shopping for clothes. And so at the end of the month, oh, I don't have money. So that's why I'm not giving. If I had money, I would give so many place priority in giving to oneself and end with giving to God. Um, a pastor named William Law said, to spend needlessly on ourselves at the expense of others is a denial of our salvation itself. Every man, therefore, is only so far a Christian as he 
partakes of the spirit of generosity in Christ. The idea is we give to the Lord first, and then the spot treatments later, right? And then the extravagant lifestyle later. Uh, two more, proportional giving. Proportional giving. A tithe is the Old Testament uh, taxation for the uh, nation of Israel. It was not 10%. It was collected three times a year. It was a flat tax of 23%. For New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, there is no command to tithe. I think tithing is a good like you know, um, training wheels, a good starting point, but we must not be legalistic. The biblical command is proportional giving. 2 Corinthians 8.12 It is acceptable according to what a person has. 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Therefore, our giving should be proportionate to our income. So if we are living humbly, and our income is small, then our giving should also be small. So let's say you're making $1,000 a month, right? And your giving should be proportional to that. You should give maybe 1%. You should, you should give something. You should give maybe a widow's mite, right? Two pennies. Or you should give, give 2%. But if you're making 1000 a month, you're barely getting by. You're, you're maybe not getting by. You should give to the Lord, but give. Maybe 1%. But if you're making 10000 a month, and you're saying, I'm tithing, and you're living on 9000 a month, or maybe some of you maybe making 100000 a month, you give 10000 you're living on 90000 and you're living in freedom and as a libertine, because, hey, I tithe, this money belongs to me, I can use it as I want. That's not proportionate giving. Right? It's your discretion, your wisdom, your understanding, your convictions, but that's by faith. How much do you want to give and stretch your budget below your income you want to give to the Lord? And that's living by faith. Right? If you're making, if God has prospered you, maybe you should give 20%. Maybe you should give 50%. If you're making such, maybe you should give 90% proportionate to your income. And then finally, we should give sacrificially. We, we should give to the point where it hurts us a little bit. Where we can feel it. Um, David said in Second Samuel 24, 24, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Right? So if we give to the Lord and we don't even feel it, because, you know, we're rich, we're prosperous, and we give, and it's a sizable amount. But because we're so rich, you don't even feel it. I don't think that's real giving. You should give where you have to sacrifice a luxury or two to give to the Lord. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is very helpful. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because of our giving excludes them. So there should be things in our lives that we can afford, that we can do, luxuries, but we don't because we put priority in giving to the Lord. This is the battle that we are fighting. Pastor Mark has rightly said last week in second hour, Cornerstone will either explode or implode. We will implode if we do all these things well, but we continue on the slippery slide down towards materialism. We will over time implode in ourselves, within ourselves. We will explode if we submit this area of our lives to the Lordship of Christ.
Father, we do confess and we ask for your forgiveness in our feelings in this area. We ask God that um, we would not be convicted by any man, but convicted by the force of the truth, the truth of the scriptures. And we would not have an impulsive or emotional response, but we would have a sober response. We would respond not by saying, oh, I'm going to give more now, or I'm going to do this or that. We would take steps back and look at how we uh, look at the world, look at possessions, look at money. We would consider what idols we have in our hearts. We would consider what is our treasure, what is our highest value, and so that uh, confession and repentance would be from within, would be from our core of who we are, that we would deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after you. Oh Lord, we do pray for the sake of your name, uh, you would uh, grant us grace in this area to be a church that gives uh, so that uh, our ministry, our evangelism, our missions work would, would be um, supported, would be confirmed by our lifestyle. Lord, we would dare not send missionaries to difficult places while living in luxury back, back at home. Oh Lord, that we would uh, live that lifestyle side to side with those uh, who go to the front lines of missions. We thank you, God, for, uh, for this time. We, we ask the Holy Spirit would give wisdom to each of us, uh, help us to fight a courageous, noble battle and, you know, and battling materialism uh, so that we would, Lord, um, bring glory to you, that we would please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.